So thank you for coming on a rainy night. I actually thought we'd have a smaller crowd because coming down from Westchester County, the, the rain was like three or four times the volume that you're having in the city. So uh, thank you for being here and thank you for uh, your practice that, of course, helps the whole world because we're not separate. <coughs> there are three, there are two cushions in the front. If anyone wants to sit in the front. And if anybody has an extra cushion, extra Zafu round cushion, it would be great because we have a couple of empty Zabatons. So welcome to New York Insight. My name is Gina Sharp, for those of you whom I have not met. And we always start our events here at New York Insight by having you meet the people around you. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. So introduce yourself, your name, where you're from, etc.
So are there any beginners here tonight or anybody who's new to New York Insight who's not meditated before? So if you are, you might want you might like to know that we do have people in the other room, seven eight, teaching. So if you'd like instructions on sitting, the small there's there are very beautiful, wonderful teachers in the small room in the back that will give you instructions and you can come back in after the sit uh, for our discussion. Have a great time. You will. Maybe. <laughs> So I'll give just a few instructions, but not, not a lot. I'd like to start with a poem for your consideration. It's called Love After Love by Derek Walcott, who's a wonderful St. Lucian um, poet. He's the only Nobel laureate on the island, on the island of St. Lucia. He won the Nobel Prize for literature. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the world. Sit. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. So let's sit again. molecule by molecule, letting all of your molecules gather here in this place right now. Remembering the word for mindfulness, sati, literally means to remember. Remember to be here. Through all of the chatter of the mind, perhaps discomfort in the body, sounds and sensations that we're tempted to 
receive as distraction or simply phenomena to be included. There is no distraction in our practice. Just phenomena arising and passing away. Bearing witness to the constant impermanence of all things.
the last few moments of this sitting together. See if you can deeply engage your mindfulness, your presence. You'll see awareness is just on the surface of this moment. See if you can come deep into it. Allowing the practice really deepen and be engaged. We're going to take about 10 minutes to meditate in a different posture. So if you need to go to the bathroom, you can go to the bathroom, but continue your meditation. Continue your presence. If you want to stand up and stretch, please do so. And let's just stay in silence so that we can stay with our meditative aspect.
turn out down here. Well, I wanted to. Who's teaching? So, could you ask her to just release them? Okay. <laughs> so patience is a virtue. And when we wait, we always have the opportunity to develop all kinds of paramis. Paramis are what we call perfections of a Buddha. So we have the opportunity to develop patience. We have the opportunity to breathe. We have the opportunity to develop generosity. We have the opportunity to develop relinquishing the, our idea about how we think it should be. Um, we have all kinds of qualities that we can really pay attention to see how they develop. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit to just to seed our conversation tonight about something else that happened over the uh, Christmas holiday. We have a wonderful um, colleague and friend named Alan Locust. Some, we've sometimes invited him to teach at New York Insight, and some of you may have been with him. And um, he has done so beautifully, and he's written a couple of books, one on patience, and I forget the name of the other one, which are, have been very well received. And he's been a, a, a member of our, our Dharma community for many years now. And we saw him at our uh, at our 15th anniversary benefit in October, and at that time he was very he and his wife Susanna were very excited because they were going to Burma, and it was their first visit to Burma. And so I spoke with them a little while and told them about my travels in Burma, and, and he was very happy for them. And then in January uh, we got a call. It said that um, Alan and Susanna were flying from Yangon to a place called Lake Inlet, and everything was fine, and all of a sudden the plane uh, landed, uh, the plane crashed on its landing. And uh, they and it, it immediately burst into flames. And they both survived, but uh, Susanna broke her back, and Alan pushed her out of the plane, because once the fire started, he told her to jump, and then he got trapped in the plane. And uh, he got third-degree burns over a third of his body. And he was taken to a Burmese hospital, and which wasn't was in a small village, and so there weren't a lot of facilities there. So there wasn't people had to bring them food and linens and all of that, and barely any medicine. And then uh, he was taken. He was flown to Singapore. You know, I'm sorry. He was flown to Thailand, 
That was a little bit better, but not much. And then thrown to Singapore because there was no burn unit in Thailand. So you can imagine what it must have been like to be burned in that way and to not really have any real medical attention for all of those days. And then finally he was brought to New York and he's now in um, Presbyterian Hospital in the burn burn ICU unit, intensive care. So um, a couple of things. One is that I would ask if, if you can include him in your and Susanna in your message. She's been amazing. She was slightly burned, not as burned as badly as she was, but her back is broken. And um, I, she's been writing. So many of our New York Insight teachers have been uh, going to their center, which is called Community Meditation Center on the Upper West Side. Um, and they meet on Sunday mornings. And so Sharon Salzberg has taught there. On a Sunday, I've taught there on a Sunday, and a couple of our other teachers, George Kudigorski and John Aaron, have taught there, and we're just taking turns to help to keep their community going while they heal. But, so Susanna has been writing letters to her sangha, to the community, um, just about weekly, and I wanted to read one of them to you. This is the most recent one. Um, because I thought it was such a beautiful example of understanding the power of the practice that we do. That in a way, when things are going along, you know, just as they go along in our lives, and we practice, um, and I get this from many students, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out, how do I get my practice really engaged? How do I get it into gear? And in a way, I think the reason that we don't get our practice deep and here and engaged is because we forget how fragile our lives are. We forget that anything can happen at any time. When I heard about Susanna and Alan, I realized I travel quite a bit for teaching. I realized how blithely I get onto planes and just assume that I'm going to arrive at the place that I think I'm going to. And it's not just planes, but it's a car or a bus or a train or even walking on the street. We think that we're going to wind up wherever we're headed because we keep forgetting the fragility of life. And we keep forgetting how important it is to understand that we have not gone beyond death. We have not gone beyond illness. We have not gone beyond aging. And that that is why we practice. So that we understand deeply and fully um, the vicissitudes of life that are quite, uh, they're part of life. They're not, ex- having a plane crash feels like it's something that's an ex- extraordinary experience. And in some ways it is. And in another way, it's quite ordinary. Because we never know what will happen. And so our practice is a way of um, understanding how to relate to life that, in a way that includes all of these vicissitudes, 
It also includes the joys. You know, the Taoists say that life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And we practice to be able to work with all of the joys that come without going overboard and becoming so exuberant that we lose ourselves. And working with all of the sorrows that come so that we don't feel like victims and we don't feel like or woe is me, and this shouldn't have happened, and I did something wrong, and look for somebody to blame, because we, because we think things shouldn't be this way. But they are how they are. And we realize the power of our practice. Well, I'll, I'll read some of you from Suzuki Roshi, who was a beautiful Zen monk from the 20th century. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. You understand the power of your practice when you're actually able to sit in the midst of it all with some equanimity, with some wisdom and compassion and kindness for yourself and for all the beings with whom you share this planet. So Susanna's letter to her Sangha this week, she said, this has been a week of ups and downs, cycling through so rapidly at times that everything spins. It makes me appreciate the Buddha's teaching of the middle way. Never have I so desired equanimity, craving big time. Other teachings have been invaluable. Acceptance and relinquishing being absolutely essential to surviving this ordeal. I remember one of the first days after the crash, sitting beside Alan's hospital bed and saying, this is our life for now. I don't know how long this strange and difficult existence will last, or even what will arise moment to moment. But I know that without acceptance, I wouldn't have a shred of equanimity. It hasn't been easy, but there is a certain feeling of simply making the decision, this is our life right now, and I accept it. It isn't a weak, oh well, sigh, what can we do, kind of acceptance, but rather it feels quietly strong and grounded. And relinquishing, losing absolutely everything that we had with us in the crash was a good start. Letting go of material things is so easy compared to all the other relinquishing that I needed, that is needed. I could make lists that go on and on, but basically it's just wanting things to be different from the way they are. And in this situation, impermanence is our friend. So that's our community. You know, we're really mindful of the fact that third refuge is refuge in Sangha to be in the community of beings that practice together. And I was reflecting on the fact that 
I'm really honored to be in your presence. I'm honored to be in the presence of a group such as this that has some inkling or some idea of the value of a practice that trains the mind to understand deeply the true nature of life. It's impermanent. It's changing nature that's constantly flowing and shifting and moving, which is, as Susanna says, our friend. It can also be bad news because sometimes you know, we get into a certain place and we think, oh, it shouldn't change, right? Because it's just how I want it. And then it changes. But to understand that constant nature of impermanence and that there's nothing we can grasp. And when we understand that really deeply and we take it in and we live by it, the possibility of suffering, of the end of suffering, is right there. It's available to us. So please include Alan and Susanna and their community, the Community Meditation Center, in your So, um, on these Tuesday nights, we create a Dharma talk together through your questions. So, please, if you have questions, I'm happy to entertain them and we'll see if we can investigate them and come to some kind of understanding. There's, 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 a, there's a mic coming. your name? Julia. You heard something about Lotus at Vavel? Uh-huh. And you saw, and you heard First of all, the Bodhisattva vow is um, one that's taken in another tradition other than our tradition. So um, it's it's not one that I'm, I've, although I've um, studied in the Mahayana tradition with some teachers and, and in the Vajrayana with other teachers, it's not the tradition that I deeply practice in. So please take whatever I say is with a grain of salt. Okay, but I'll wade in anyway. So the so the Bodhisattva vow is um, uh, if anybody knows this and, and I mess it up, please feel free to correct me. Uh, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Starting with paradox immediately. So if beings are numberless, how could you possibly say? Um, the Dharma is vast. 
to boundless, I bow to mastery. Second paragraph. It's boundless and vast. How could you possibly mastery? You see, desires are inexhaustible. I bow to to put an end to them. So if they're inexhaustible, how could you possibly put an end to them? But you're starting to get the picture. And it's based on um, what's called bodhicitta, which is that aspiration that we talked about. So you have a mind that is awake and that has these aspirations, these vows to save all things. So paradox, the very nature of paradox is that it can't be resolved. But it doesn't mean that the mind doesn't try to resolve it anyway. And it doesn't mean that we don't start out on the uh, the ground that uh, has some understanding of one's own nature. And one's own nature is uh, completely, utterly, and inescapably, inextricably, and inexorably tied to other beings. That there is a there is an interconnectedness to the way we are together. It means that we're not separate. We're not sitting here alone. But there's only one of us. And so we recognize then in this Mahayana tradition that the enlightenment of one being is kind of useless if it doesn't take into account the um, what Martin Luther King calls the inescapable mutuality of existence. So when we start out on our practice, in our practice, we have a we have an aspiration to understand that deeply, and not only to understand it deeply, but to act in a way that is consonant and aligned with that understanding. And it's a beautiful journey to do it. To to. Um, to seek to understand that, to recognize it, and to live within that paradox. Because you are, you're there, you're Julian, right? You've had however many birthdays you've had. And, you know, you've had experiences and a memory of those experiences and a particular mother and a particular father. And yet you're not different from anybody who's here. But you are an individual. And so it wouldn't be a bad thing or a bad idea to live your life in a way that seeks the reconciliation of those two truths. That there is a relative truth. They're there and I'm here. 
somebody else is here. And yet there's also an absolute truth. So that there is no difference. Kind of beautiful thing. Anything like that? <laughs> okay. We have a Maya student here. Thank you. Okay. There's someone here. Thank you. Could you put it a little closer? You seek to. So how has the perfection worked for you? And then people live in it, right? So would you call that impermanent? So how long have you been practicing? 
Mm-hmm. And what have you seen? None of what matters. Oh. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. There's a difference between equanimity and indifference. Equanimity and indifference. There's a there's a, there's a difference between. Um, Nihilism, right? Ah, doesn't matter, who cares? You know, it's all impermanent anyway. And the real understanding of um, the nature of existence. So if we think nothing matters, then we'll do nothing, and we'll be nothing. But if we truly understand um, the, the moving, shifting, constant, impermanent, wonderful nature of life, then it's possible for us to be engaged in every single moment and be able to let go in every single moment. So we're talking about paradox with Julia. What's your name? Holly. So, so there's so we're we're constantly in this uh, paradox, right? Where everything matters, and yet learning to let go is the most important thing that we can do. But everything matters. And when we, when we sit, if we at some point begin to uh, be so still, and the mind becomes so silent that the nature of being becomes transparent. And that nature of being, the transparency of that nature of being shows us the incredible um, speed at which things are changing. So as you sit here, every single molecule in your body is moving, even when you sit completely still. The atoms are bouncing around and hitting each other and molecules are moving and shifting and Everything is changing. And as I say, every seven years, all of the cells in your body are different. So there's got to be some movement for that to happen. But what happens is we are um, so used to seeing things as solid and uh, stable that we've lost our ability to see through transparently through the nature of shifting and moving and impermanence. So it's like if you're watching a movie, right? You know, I think I've said that here before that I used to live in the Bahamas and in that culture, 
when people go to the movies, right, they yell and scream at the, at, the, at the screen. So it's like, watch out, he's behind you. Don't turn around, don't turn around. Oh my God, oh God, he's gonna crash. Slow down, slow down. Right? Because they get so caught by the, the story. Right? But meanwhile, what's happening? If they turn and look back at the projection, well, in the old days, the projection room, right? You'd see this light coming out and these images being projected onto a screen. And, and I used to work in the movie business, so I, I, you know, I saw these films. So, so the, the frames of, there are, you know, a hundred frames to each, you know, to, to something that we see as one, one, one thing. But it's moving so fast that it looks like, you know, just one thing happens and then the people move and somebody speaks and all that. But meanwhile, the film itself is chugging right along. But we get so caught in the story that we think that the story is true and that the people are real and that, you know, he really is going to kill him and she's really going to, you know, betray her husband and this one's really going to do that and so they start that. And, you know, we may not do that in this country. We may not yell at the screen. But we're, the, the mind's giving us that self-talk, right? Watch out, watch out, don't go there. Right, right. So, the nature of reality is quite parallel to that film. And the more you sit, and the more you practice, and the more still your mind becomes, the more able you will be to see that. Really see, I'm talking physically. I'm not even talking about, you know, theoretical or mental or psychological or emotional. I'm talking physical phenomena are moving and shifting and changing at that kind of speed. So if that's true, so look at a river, right? What did the Greek philosopher Heraclitus say? You can never step in the same river twice. Why? Because it's moving and shifting and changing all the time. But when you look at the river, it looks like, you know, oh, that's the Mississippi. Oh, that's the Hudson. Oh, that's the East River. But it's, that's just a name that we're giving for this constant shifting and changing movement. So it's not like you have to rid yourself of the idea of perfection, but understand deeply the nature of existence in this impermanent way. And how do you do that? You do that by viscerally experiencing it, not by some idea or some concept of how it is. You know, and it's great to hear the teachings because they point you to look, look. But until you really see, you know, the Dalai Lama could be here telling you. And it doesn't matter. Right? It, it resonates with us because there's some level at which we really do understand the nature of life. But we have layers and layers and layers of delusion that we've built up over time. And so meditation is not getting anything. It's really letting go of so much. 
It's relinquishing, as Susanna said in her letter. So much of how we think things ought to be, or the way we think they are, rather than the way we know they are. And how do we know how they are? By being aware, by being open-hearted, and really knowing, oh, this is how it is. By not um, missing any experience in your life, whether they're wonderful and pleasant and what just what you wanted, or, or you think they're horrible and exactly what you didn't want. Because there's something that you can learn from every single experience that comes along in your life. If you're committed to really seeing, if you're committed to really understanding and knowing with wisdom and compassion how things are, then your response, you can fluff that pillow up on the sofa, it's fine, it's not a problem. But you can laugh at the same time and know the dog's going to sit on it. Maybe even pee on it. Right? Right? And you can laugh then too. Right? So that there's a letting go that happens. But it happens not because you make yourself become something else, but because you, um, over time, train the mind to see deeply, to not just see on the you know, like a cork on the water, but more like a stone dropping into the water. You're very welcome. Good. Hmm. Thank you on behalf of Derek Walcott. practices that you're taught, whether it's um, the mindfulness practice or metta practice, loving-kindness practice, all of these practices are journeys. And, and the, the levels at which we, um, the, the levels to which we attain are progressive and cumulative. So, you know, what's your name? Kristen. So Kristen was talking about, you didn't have the microphone up to your mouth, so I'll just say that you were saying that the, the Derek Walcott poem that I read was so beautiful and that, you know, it brought tears to your eyes and that you were um, uh, reflecting on how difficult it is for some of us to, to love ourselves, to care for ourselves. And so even that is a, it's a learned, and it's possible to learn that. It's possible to train the mind and heart to love ourselves. But it doesn't happen like that overnight. For some, occasionally it does. But most of the time, it takes a kind of journey. 
when we start out, and it's just that first recognition that you have. Oh, why is it so hard for me or for some people to care for themselves or to love themselves? Oh, and then we find out, oh, there's a possibility that we could do that. And then we start on the journey. And it's a beautiful journey. Because we start out with what Susanna was talking about in her letter, that acceptance of, oh, this is how it is. And we and so we understand, oh, I don't care for myself enough. I don't love myself enough. But it's not a, oh, when get it, when will I get over it? Or when will I do this? Or when will I do that? Oh, you never do anything. It's not that. It's that first recognition is an oh. And we recognize the pain and the suffering of that. When we don't care for ourselves, that's painful. And we suffer from it. And we and so we develop the state, the desire or the aspiration to um, to learn how to do that once more. Because we did as children. Who we are as adults, we've grown into from all of the experiences and the traumas and all of the ways in which our poor parents were just human beings themselves that have their own traumas and their own difficulties. And they get passed down to us. But we're able to break the, uh, the momentum when we come to some understanding that it's possible to train the mind. It's possible to train the heart. And the presence is the ground for that. And because it's a gentle and kind way of developing, it's rarely something that happens overnight. You know, they talk about sudden realization or sudden enlightenment and gradual enlightenment. And in the Zen tradition, they're always like you know, saying which is which is true. But I think both are true. There's a there's a kind of sudden realization that happens and then right and then yes and then and then the work begins there's a sudden enlightenment and then gradually the work kind of builds to it so so you know if 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 that's one of the things that you really want to work on caring and loving yourself more deeply the meta practice is a beautiful practice and you'll enjoy it too. Right. After a while, it's like, what can I do my best practice? A little closer. To love, to create an identity, and love that identity without understanding. Oh, this is a big question.
So what's your real question? My real question is how How dangerous is it to love yourself without understanding yourself? What's your name? What's your name? Patricia. How? Um, I think maybe, but I'm not completely sure. Yeah. And I, I think what you're asking is, is it possible that you can uh, do some kind of practice or, or try to love yourself without actually going deep? That it becomes like a, 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 um, a superficial practice rather than a deep practice of transformation. Is that what you're asking? Please feel free to say no if that's not what you're asking. Yeah. So it's you know so so what I was saying to Kristen is really um, is really is really part of the answer to your question that um, transformation happens over time and in a deep way. And but what that also means is that in the beginning you may only be able to work at this depth, right? And then as the practice deepens in you and you get some momentum with your practice, and that happens when you're willing to be consistent in practice. It's like any other practice. If you go to the gym and you lift, you five-pound weight this week or a two-pound weight this week and then you don't come back for another two weeks, you're only going to be able to lift that same weight the next week. But if you do it time and time and time again, you build the muscle. It's the same way with spiritual practice. But if you're consistent and, um, and engaged, not just doing it for some... You could just use that. It, and not just doing it for some... Um, light relief eventually and there's nothing wrong with that by the way if that's what you want that's fine but if, if what you're seeking is real transformation then what's needed is a kind of um, consistent and insistent practice that has some energy behind it and it will naturally deepen by itself it's not like you're going to be able to make it go deeper it just happens. That's been my experience anyway. You know, all of my efforts to do this or do that or try to make this happen never happen. And then you just kind of sit in, your, in the midst of your difficulties or in the midst of your life. And if you just sit and sit and sit, whether your sitting is boring or it's exciting or it's calm or it's not calm or it's bringing up stuff or it's not bringing up stuff or however it is for you, you just sit without any kind of expectation of what it's going to look like. And then one day, something happens, and your response is completely different. But you don't know how that happened over the time. All you did was, uh, you were willing to submit to that practice of being present, of being present, of being present and the mind starts to get trained. You know, the science is now confirming that. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful. You, you just need to practice more. We all just need to practice more. You join the club.
do we have time for one more? It's a it's a what? A third iteration of the thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Your name? So how many people in the room have never heard of this concept of not-self? Yeah, the beginners, right? Mm. <laughs> so there's this um, teaching in, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings that will confuse you when you hear it. Maybe, maybe there'll be people in the room that don't get confused. That is taught in a lot of different ways. And people get quite stuck on it. Because it's a, it's, there's a word called, in, in Pali, the, the original language in which the Buddhist texts were written, called anatta. A-N-A-T-T-A, anatta. And when you see an A at the beginning of a Pali word, it means not. And the rest of the word is, so in this case, not self. So the teaching of the Buddha was that all of the five ways, in all of the five heaps of experience, the five ways in which we experience, are not self. So he said the body is not self. So this uh, physical phenomenon is not who I am. And what's easy to figure out from that is, you know, I look in the mirror now and I don't see the way I feel my spirit to be. I see this woman who's aging way beyond what I feel. And I suspect we all have that experience to some degree. Unless you're like in your twenties. In which case that's what you have to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good news. 
And so, but, so the body is not self, right? And, and if, you, if the body was self, then you'd be able to say, look in the mirror and say, stop aging, right? And it would happen, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And then he said all of, so that, that he called uh, rupa, body. And then the four aspects of mind, nama, feeling, perception, mental formation, which is all the ways in which we, the, the mind makes up. And one um, feeling mental formations and consciousness. And he said these five things, these five heaps of uh, stuff is kind of the totality of experience. And that if you go through each of them, so if you go through feelings, so you feel an experience you know, every time there's some contact of a, one of your sense doors with a sense object, what co-arises with that is a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that feeling, being impermanent and being dependent on so many things, is also not who you are, not so. And all of these others. So the thoughts, the, the mental formations, the way in which your mind makes up stories about your experience is also not who you are. It's not really truly who you are. And consciousness is, in this, in this regard, is seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, uh, all, of the, all of the consciousnesses of our senses. Those are not who you are. And so when you, when you go through this analysis, we don't have time for me to go through a whole teaching on it, but when you go through this whole analysis, it's almost like peeling an onion, and when you get to the core of the onion, there's nothing there. So, but then, but this is an important part of the teaching that is not said often enough, and that is when somebody asks the Buddha, is there a self? His response was, I'm not going to say there is a self, and I'm not going to say there's not a self. And the reason that he said that is because both are true. But what he was pointing to was uh, to ask us to understand that who we are is a shifting, changing, moving phenomenon just like everything else. We are in the stream of life just like the rest of life. It's impermanent. So are we. We're moving, shifting. So there's nothing we can grasp onto and say, yep, that's me. Yes, we have memories of all the birthdays, as I was saying to Julia. Right? We have memories of all of these. So those are memories, but that's not who you are. And what is really radical about is that if you understand this deeply, what you understand is that change, hallelujah, is possible. Like the suffering that is in your life is possible. It's possible that it will cease. And if you grasp onto something as an identity, if you grasp onto an experience or an emotion or a feeling or a thought or this body, as, yup, this is me, this is who I am, change is not possible. 
So, so, so to reflect on that and to really, to really investigate it. So, the, what's beautiful about the Buddha's teaching is he said, "Don't believe me. Do not believe me. Don't believe any teacher that comes your way. Listen and put it into action and investigate it." And when you investigate it, if you, in your, um, in your experience, you discover that it's true, number one. Number two, that it's beneficial, it's wholesome, and it's skillful. And three, it doesn't cause suffering to anybody. Okay, then you can believe it. Then you can use it as uh, a way to live your life. So, this, so don't get stuck on this thing of there is no self, because that's not what he said. He said all of these aspects of how we are in this life, none of them is who we are. None of them is who we are. And I did some prison work a few years ago, where I spent a lot of time in prison with uh, women in the maximum security prison. And what I found astounding is when I gave women in that prison that teaching, I'd come back the next week and they would get it. It was the most, I don't, I don't, I still don't completely understand it, but I think it's because they understood and they had some urgency about needing to change. So they would take it to heart and they would really practice with it, and they would really look at it in a very deep way. And some of the, some of the stories are miraculous in, in, in what people accomplish. So, but don't leave it on a superficial level or, you know, say, oh, you know, it's just because I think I'm a self. It's, that's too superficial. But to really keep asking, who am I? What is this? And every time you say, I'm this way, or I should be that way, you're grasping at a self. And when you grasp at a self, you make it permanent, you make it stick. And then there's no way of changing. Those of you who've smoked, you know, I used to, I smoked, so I know what it's like to consider yourself a smoker, right? And it gets impossible when you consider yourself a smoker to stop smoking. But you, the minute you recognize it as, oh, this is a bad habit that makes my clothes smell bad, makes my hair smell bad, makes my house smell bad, makes my lungs bad, makes, threatens my life then you work on the habit. You don't work on your identity as a smoker. You work on the habit, which is much easier than working on your identity as a And you, you know, there are a million different examples. You could probably sit there all night and get examples. So that's the teaching of them. So it's not, it's not that there is no self, because people get all tied up and wrapped up and strained and when you think of it that way. But if you understand it, just, just look, 
constantly at what identities you're grasping at and see if they're true. And if they're not true, how can I let go of it? And then what happens is you're present in every moment for how things are. You wake up one morning, you're depressed. You wake up another morning, you're joyful. You wake up another morning, you're sad. You wake up another morning, you're happy. You wake up another morning, you have a headache. Yeah, wake up. Is that you? Or is that just experience that's happening and unfolding in the way that experience unfolds? Oh my goodness, I went to Wales. I'm so sorry. So let's, um, let's just come back together and sit in silence for a few seconds just so that we collect ourselves. can reflect on the goodness that has been created here tonight through the practice that we've done together and the most excellent questions that have been asked and all of the reflections that we've done on these questions. And what happens when we come together in this way is we create a field of goodness and sometimes called merit in our tradition. And rather than keeping it for ourselves, we cast it out and cast a wide net and cover the whole world with this merit and this goodness. And we share it. And in the sharing, we have the aspiration that that the goodness of our practice be for the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings ever heard, without exception. And if you would like, you can just name people that you would like to share this merit with, and they can be alive or passed away. And you can say it out loud. And so we share the merit with all of the beings who have been mentioned either silently or vocally. And we have the wish that all beings be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. And may the merit of our practice promote this goodness promote the safety, this well-being, this health, and this ease for all beings everywhere without exception in all eight directions and above and below. Thank you so much.